Thank you guys for having me. I always consider it a huge privilege to teach the Bible anywhere, especially when I get invited to other churches. Uh, half my life, I wasn't a Jesus follower. I grew up in the total opposite lane of following Jesus. And uh, God began to change my life. I, I believed in Christ. And he began to change my life. And uh, he called me to be a pastor, which was crazy, because I would have been like, you know how like you're in middle school and you're picking teams, and you're like, I want that person and that person and that person on your team because they're really good athletes. You guys know what I'm saying? So if I was on the Jesus team, I'd have been the last pick every time. So it's a miracle that God uses my life. I feel honored to be here with you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, grab it and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I know you guys are in the book of Acts, but... We're going to kind of journey in to the book of James tonight, and uh, when you're there, say ready, and I'll pray. All right, is anybody ready? You're going to have to do this because I do responsive stuff, so um, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for this church. God, it's a, it's a miracle to, to be here um, and to see what you're doing in less than a year with the people that are here, and the worship, and your spirit, and God, truly what you're laying a foundation for, um, to see so many people follow Jesus, and be discipled, and walk, and know the King of kings, and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would encourage hearts tonight. I pray, Lord, that people would believe in Jesus. I pray, God, that people's lives uh, would soften, and they truly would would turn to you fully and understand and know that they can find all hope in you, Jesus. Lord, we just ask that you would take this time and make it fruitful in your name. Amen. Since you guys haven't been in the book of James, I want to give you a brief background. Uh, James was a half-brother of Jesus, and he didn't believe in Jesus until after Jesus rose from the grave. So he thought his brother was crazy out of his mind. And then Jesus Christ rises from the grave and he believes in Jesus. He becomes a leader in the early church and he writes the book of James. The book of James was written to a group of people that had been dispersed from their homeland. These were a group of people that began to follow Jesus and there was persecution and there was a dispersion. And so you have the, the 12 tribes, it says in, in chapter one, verse one, this is written to the 12 tribes which essentially was the tribes of Israel. And people from these tribes were dispersed outside of their homeland, Israel, and they were living in foreign lands without their uh, community. And they were struggling. They were being persecuted. They had uh, economic pressures and struggles. And so James is a pastor and a leader, and he's writing to a people that were struggling. Their life was hard. And for some of us, we understand that because life on earth, even as a Jesus follower, can be very difficult. Suffering is never easy. Hardships and pain and hurt and trials, those things are difficult. And no matter what we say in Christianity with all of our uh, hyper-spiritual language, none of that can overshadow the fact that brokenness on earth is real and it is painful. So James is writing in that context to those people, and he wants them to understand how to think through brokenness, how to think through pain, how to think through trials, and how to respond when those things come into our lives. 
So you ready for this? Chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 2. James is writing to these people, and he says to them, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, the interesting part about the book of James is he's writing, and the message that he has is living faith. Like, it's one thing to say that I believe in Jesus. It's another thing to truly believe in Jesus. It's one thing to say, I trust God, right? But it's another thing to really trust God when life is hard. And so he's writing to these people, and he says at the beginning, talking to a broken people, he says, count it all joy, my brothers. Interesting, the, the term phrase count it is, is a calculation term. It's making a decision after weighing all the facts or circumstances. And so he wants them to think. He's not just saying, do this. He's saying, consider it, think about it, calculate this reality, what I'm about to tell you about the process of suffering and pain and trials. Count it all joy. Now, if I wasn't a follower of Jesus, I would think, what do you mean? Count it joy when, when you experience brokenness? When you're being persecuted? Or when, when life is not going well? What do you mean count it joy? God is not being weird here. Like God didn't inspire James to write this to, to cause us to be weird. God is not telling you when you're going through a hard time in life to be the person who walks into church and says, God is so good, everything's great, happy, clappy Christian. God is not looking for that. Like when I hear people pray and they're really zealous and like, Jesus, please give me trials. Please give me suffering. I'm like, you are really weird, but I'm not gonna tell you that. That's odd. God is not teaching his people to be odd. And he's not teaching us to put on a fake facade. He's not telling us, you know, you have to act like everything's okay in your life and you've got like this ton, you've got a ton of joy and and you always have a smile on your face. He's not saying that at all because joy has nothing to do with what takes place outwardly in your life. It has nothing to do with your nonverbal communication. It has nothing to do with you smiling. You can have joy and pain and brokenness and depression uh, and despondency and despair. You can have joy in those things. He is not teaching us to have joy for trials. He is teaching us to have joy in the process of trials. God never teaches his people to have joy in the pain of a trial because pain is hard. God teaches to have joy in the process of trials because in the process of trials, something is developed in our life. We have fresh perspectives. Our heart changes. Our our growth in Jesus advances. And so the process is important. And that's why James says we can have joy. In fact, we can have joy because in the process, what Satan may have meant for evil in our lives, what people meant for evil by hurting us, sinning against us, affecting our lives, God can flip the script on any trial and he can do good. He can redeem it. He can make something beautiful out of your brokenness. That's the way that God works. God changes what was meant for evil, and he flips the script and he brings beauty and goodness out of it because God is a God who saves and he's present and he's working even in the midst of our pain and our trials. 
Psalm chapter 120, or Psalm 126, verse 5 says this, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I think of Joseph. Joseph is this like famous character in the Old Testament. And his story is amazing because Joseph was just a normal guy. He was a, a brother. He has lots of siblings. And he began to have these dreams. God gave him these dreams. And in these dreams, God was starting to share with Joseph that he was going to be a major leader and he would be above his brothers. Well, he started sharing these things. And you know, siblings, uh, you share anything like you're going to be above me someday. That's not going to work out too well. So they got really bitter and jealous. And one day they were, uh, they were out in the desert and uh, they decided they were going to throw him in a pit and let him die there. And then well, one of his brothers was like, we better not do it, that to him. Let's sell him into slavery. So they sold him into slavery. He goes to Egypt, to foreign land. So he's away from his parents. He's away from his brothers. He's away from uh, everything that's comfortable in his life. And there he is. He's in a foreign land. God gives him favor. He's an awesome guy. He has a lot of integrity. And uh, he becomes the right-hand, God, the right-hand man, pardon me, not God, um, uh, to uh, a guy who was a captain of the guard of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like the king or the president. And he's in this house and he's super faithful. It's what was called back then a steward. And he was over all the affairs of this guy's house, including his money, all of his employees. He was a manager. And uh, uh, his wife, this guy's wife, was after Joseph and uh, wanted to sleep with him. And so here's Joseph. Joseph kept uh, stiff-arming her. That's like a football uh, metaphor, stiff-arming her. And uh, so over and over and over, she became more aggressive. And one day, she literally tried to grab him and have sex with him. And he split. He ran, left his coat. She made up a story, falsely accused him. He goes into prison. Here's a guy walking with Jesus. Now he was rejected by his family. He's imprisoned. And through his imprisonment, God again raised him up and gave him favor. And through a series of relationships and dreams and, and, and connecting to the king uh, of, of Egypt, he gets out of prison. He becomes a part of the king's uh, uh, a main team. And he actually becomes the right-hand man to the pharaoh, the king at uh, that time. And uh, God gave him favor and he saves his family. Through all of his pain, God was raising him up to save his family from death in the midst of a famine. God can flip the script on our pain. God can take what was meant for evil and use it for good. Notice what James says next. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The term meet here means to fall into. In other words, we do not seek trials. Don't pray for trials. Don't be a hyper-spiritual Christian that prays for things like trials. We don't seek trials. We stumble into trials. Trials are unexpected. Nobody plan. No, you know your five-year plan? You guys are young, right? And you guys are like thinking like five-year plans in your life. Nobody says, year three, I want to go through a lot of brokenness and pain. Like, how many of you have planned that? Raise your hand. We stumble into it. It's like year one and two and my five-year plan is going excellent according to plan and then year three happens and all of a sudden I stumble into this very difficult time of life. And that's exactly what James is saying, that these things are inevitable. 
Because he says, when, you see that? When, in other words, it's going to happen in all of our lives because we live in a broken world and sin has permeated and degraded our world. And so it's inevitable, but it's unplanned and it's unexpected. Eight years ago, we planted a church, Ecclesia in Eugene, Oregon. We, uh, my wife and I, we were in Hawaii. That was awesome, right? Uh, we were living in Hawaii, serving God. I was a director of a Bible college, and, uh, and we moved back to Oregon. We were praying about planting a church, and uh, Eugene, Oregon is a really hard place to plant a church. It's like a church planting graveyard. You go there, and it doesn't work. So, you know, your church goes in the graveyard. And uh, so we moved there. We didn't really know anybody. We started a Bible study in my living room, um, and uh, we had like less than five people, uh, including me and my wife. So, you know, that you're not adding many people to that. And so um, we're there, and m- month one is really confusing. It's like, God, you've called me here, and like, you're supposed to do this, but how's this going to work? Like, we don't know anybody. How are people going to know about us and get saved? And then all of a sudden, about, after about a month and a half, this just people started showing up. Uh, and uh, the train started going. And from year one through year five, it was like, for a lot of people, a church planner's dream because we grew from less than five people to 2,000 people in five years. But around uh, year three and a half to five, uh, I was wrecked. Uh, I was burnt out in every way. I was going 100 miles an hour. I was on this train. It was going really fast. I, I didn't know how to get off. I didn't know how to rest. Uh, I started having all these health problems. I was maxed in every way. And so at year five, uh, my wife and I took a sabbatical for six months. And we have an awesome church. They love us a ton. Uh, But right before that, um, about 14, 15 years ago, my wife was almost paralyzed in a car accident. Uh, She has to deal with all the uh, results and repercussions of that for the rest of her life. Right before that, she got in another accident and uh, it wrecked her. She lost her memory for two years. Uh, her body was absolutely ravaged because of the uh, injury before, and now the compounding injury she had from this car accident. So during our sabbatical, it was rough. She, my wife was, was just struggling and depression and loss of memory and in, in incredible pain, and we were just trying to figure out how we could help her medically. And uh, for the last three years in our church, year six through eight has not been the same as year one through five. Because my life has been living in hardship and brokenness and trying to figure out the best possible care for my wife to have her live a somewhat normal life again. Uh, uh, Not normal compared to us, but normal compared to uh, actually functioning in life. So this is real for me. I was with a friend uh, yesterday in LA. He's a designer and an incredible guy. Uh, and uh, we were talking about his life and he was talking about my life. And, and he asked me a question. He said, I was talking about my life message. What I feel like God has given me as a life message. And, and I was talking about this, suffering and pain and brokenness and and uh, I was talking about how I always feel called to give people hope. And he said, do you have hope? And he didn't know this, but inside I, I wanted to just start crying uncontrollably. 
And I, I just got quiet. And I thought for a second. I did what James says. I, I calculated. I thought. And I said, you know what? I do have hope. It's the only thing that's kept me going. It's the only thing that's kept me serving God. Hope. And God's speaking hope into my life. And God says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, there's many different types of trials, right? Right? And, and here's the point that God is making. Here's what God wants to get across into our lives. You guys are young, and maybe some of you right now, life is going great, but someday you're going to need this. We cannot, listen, we cannot control the inevitability of trials. They're going to come. We're going to stumble into them in our life. You're going to have uh, years like year one through five in our church plan, but you might have years like year six through eight in my life in our church plan. And when you come into those trials, when you meet those trials, you cannot control the trial coming into your life, but you can control your mindset and response to those trials in your life. You can control how you think about them, and you can control how you respond to them. And notice what he says, trials are various kinds. These are temptations. These are testings. And we meet these trials, and when we meet them, there's all kinds of them. Mine might be what I'm going through with my wife and what she's going through, but suffering has many forms. I want you to understand kind of a broad, overarching perspective of suffering in Scripture. So there's a number of elements of suffering. If you're a note-taker, write this down. If you're not a note-taker, we, we say in Oregon, write this down. Okay, so uh, number one, there's physical suffering. There's physical suffering. Job, he's an epic story in the Bible. The guy uh, literally was in so much pain. He cried out to God, I wish you never created me. Like that's pretty rough. The man was in major, major uh, context of physical suffering. Secondly, there's a mental and emotional suffering in scripture. David, who wrote uh, many of the Psalms, He was constantly talking about his internal struggles, his depression, his anxiety. Uh, Jesus talks about anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is not sinful anxiety. This is physiological anxiety, things that take place in us because the pressures of life, there's mental and emotional suffering. In fact, a lot of people like the Psalms. One third of the Psalms are graphic illustrations of laments and suffering. One third of them. We feel a connection to that. We understand that life is hard and difficult and trials are hard. So there's physical suffering, mental and emotional suffering. And third, there's relational suffering. When friends betray us, when relationships don't work out, there's relational suffering. Fourth, there's spiritual suffering. Paul talked about his anxiety for the churches. Isn't that amazing? We like to play anxiety as like a bad thing in Christianity, but Paul actually talked about uh, it wasn't a sinful thing. It was the fact that he cared so much. He carried the weight of people's lives on his heart, and he had spiritual anxiety for the churches. There's also, uh, fifth, material suffering. God's people in famines. The, The people of James here, they were facing material suffering, which affected all of their life. And then sixth, in Scripture, we see national suffering. Where Israel would go into exile, there would be foreign lands, they would make war, they would take the, defeat the, the nation of Israel, and they would take them away from their homeland. And so there's regional, we could say regional suffering in a, a place like America. 
9-11 was a form of national suffering. That's today. We remember 9-11. We remember what happened. We remember how that shaped and changed our nation. So there's many types of suffering. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. You're going to meet trials and know that there's many different types of trials. Some of you, it may be physical, some mental, emotional, some relational, some spiritual, material, regional, or national. These are the forms of suffering in Scripture. Then he goes on to say, verse 3, so we count it joy. He's going to say a lot more about why we count it joy. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know. You know through experience. That's the idea here. There's multiple terms used in the New Testament for know. One of them is oida, and uh, it's, it's an interesting term that is not relating to experience. And another one's gnosko. That's the term used here. And this is talking about understanding something, knowing something through experience. In other words, James is saying to the people, you guys know because you're living it. Some of you in here, you know this because this is your story. This has been a part of your life. This is a a chapter in your life that you've either experienced in the past or your experience in the present. And so James is saying to the people, you know that the testing of your faith, do you know that all suffering and all trials, they test our faith. They prove our faith. In fact, this term testing means to learn the genuineness of something by examination and testing. Trials are a part of our life, and trials test the genuineness of our faith. And and as God is is inspiring James to write this, he, he knows that trials can be a source of sorrow and pain and brokenness and confusion, but they also can be a source of value. They test the genuineness of our faith. It's easy to love God on the mountaintop, but it's harder to love God in the valley. It's easy to lead when all things are going well, but it's harder to lead when all you have is sorrow and pain and brokenness and Jesus. It's easy to be on mission and make disciples when momentum is strong and and, and things are going incredible and all things seem to be going for you. It's harder to lead and be on mission for Jesus when all things seem to be against you. You see what I mean? Trials test the genuineness of our faith. Is it real? Is it active? Is it obedient? Is it living? Do I make choices when I'm going through a trial that say, God, I'm trusting you. I'm taking steps forward. I'm believing that you have a plan. I'm believing that you're present and you're sovereign and you're going to save me and deliver me and you're going to use this in my life. They test us. It's like sponges. You guys use sponges when you wash your dishes? Raise your hand if you use a sponge, right? I love cleaning. Like seriously, I am OCD about organization and cleanliness. I love doing the dishes. I love laundry. I love cleaning house. And I use all green natural stuff. I'm 
totally into that stuff. And uh, my sponges, I keep them clean. But once in a while, I'll go into somebody's house. I'll be like, hey, I'll, you know, you cook me a meal. I'll help do the dishes because I don't mind that. I enjoy it. And, uh, and I look at their sponge. I'm like, whoa, they have never washed or rinsed out or done anything with this sponge. And it's really old. And so you squeeze the sponge and, and some nasty stuff comes out. Right? When, when God, listen, when God squeezes your life, when you feel the pressures of trials and hardship and brokenness, what comes out of us? Sure, there's going to be stuff that comes out that is just a part of the process of confusion and brokenness and hardship and pain and all of those things that I've been mentioning. But what comes out once all of that is out? Do we trust God? Do we keep moving forward? Do we stay on mission? Do we keep making disciples? Do we keep seeking him and loving him and believing him? Do we keep connected to him? That's what James is saying. The trials and the pain and the suffering of your life, it's going to test your faith. 1 Peter 1 verse 7 puts it this way, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than, than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Job says it in another way, Job 23.10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. To me, that's remarkable that Job said that because Job lost his health. He lost his children. He was the most wealthy, powerful man on the face of the earth. He lost all of that, his business, his influence. His wife rejected him. He lost everything, and then he had the worst friends. They were Pharisee friends. They knew a lot of theology, but they had no heart in love. And he says, God, I know that after I go through this test, that you're going to bring something beautiful out of it like gold. I believe for some of you, this isn't relevant now. But this is going to be relevant someday in your life, and you're going to need this. You're going to need to know that God can do something good out of your pain. You're going to need to know that sometimes it's going to be a struggle to believe God, but when everything is squeezed out of you, keep trusting God. One day at a time, one step at a time, keep trusting God. And don't quit serving Jesus. And don't quit being on mission for Jesus. And don't quit uh, developing community and making disciples for Jesus just because you're in pain. In fact, your greatest ministry will come out of your brokenness. You'll be able to speak into people's lives and hearts in such a powerful, emotional, relatable way that nobody else could, but you've been through it. That's the message that God has for us. That's the message that God had for these people. For you know that the testing of your faith, it produces something. Ultimately, what he's going to say, and I'll just give you the big picture, is that it produces spiritual growth. Jesus said in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, he was 
telling a parable of the sower, and the sower was sowing seeds on different types of soil. And one of the soils was rocky ground, and he said, some people receive the word with joy. There are those people that they come to Jesus, right? You think, and they're like, I love Jesus, and they're serving, and they're in the community group, and they're like, I want to be discipled, and they're doing everything, and they're really passionate. And then they're gone. And everybody says, what happened to so-and-so? What, what happened to so-and-so? They fell away. Because Jesus says when persecution or tribulation arises, they fall away. Because the gospel really wasn't implanted in their soul. Emotionally, maybe they liked it, they loved the community, but they didn't really believe in Jesus. And so they didn't believe in Jesus. Therefore, when the pain came and the brokenness and the trial, they fell away. God doesn't want you to fall away. God doesn't want trials to destroy your faith. He wants trials to deepen your faith. God doesn't want uh, trials to be a means that halts you spiritually. God wants trials to be a means that grows you spiritually. And then the reality is that when we're in trials and we're dealing with pain and, and we're struggling with some part of life, some sect of life, trials can cause us either to cling to God and grow spiritually or to run from God and to cling to some functional savior. And a lot of people do that. They put band-aids over their pain, but Jesus is no band-aid to your pain. I promise you that. I'm a living illustration of that. And so God wants to produce something in you. Notice what he produces, because this is really important. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is an interesting Greek term. It's a compound word. It comes from a preposition, hupa, which means under, to remain under. And mone, uh, which, which literally, the idea is that you're patiently remaining under the trial. We want to run from it, don't we? We're like, God, get me out of this. I'm going to run away from this. I don't want this in my life. But God is saying, no, patiently endure it. Stay under it. Stay steadfast in the midst of of opposition and difficulty and, and testing. Stay the course. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't run away. Stay under it. Listen, this is the interesting part about steadfastness. I've had a lot of time to think about this in my life. Steadfastness, according to God, is key to spiritual development. But here's the kicker. Steadfastness can only exist with adversity. God, I want to be steadfast. Right? right? Like, God, I want to develop. If steadfastness is, is really important for spiritual development in my life, for me to grow in my walk with Jesus, I want that. But here's the thing. Steadfastness can only exist with adversity. I used to be a runner, and uh, I still am a runner. I'm running like five to seven days a week now. That was like my summer goal, uh, to get in as good a shape as I used to be in when I played college sports. And so I've, I've been like dialed in and I'm loving it. And sometimes when you run, like if I was running competitively, you hit a wall. And when you hit a wall and you're running competitively, you don't quit. You're not like, oh, you know, the race isn't over, but my body's given out. no. There is adversity and you persevere and you remain steadfast. You keep going. You muster up everything inside of you to compete and finish the race. 
And that's steadfastness. It can only exist with adversity. And so it's a key to spiritual development. In fact, in Romans, Paul wrote, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And then he goes on to list all of the, it's like a chain link of virtues, all of these virtues that come out of steadfastness. It's hard. I don't want to portray a false picture because during steadfastness, you and I, we wrestle We weep, we doubt, we become weary, we become discouraged, we seek, we evaluate, we listen, we learn, we trust, we grow. It's a a process that can take you all over the place. But it's an important process to keep going even in the midst of all the emotions and all the processes of trials that take place as we're going through them, to keep going and to learn that this is essential for spiritual development. That's why we have joy, because God can do something with it. Then verse four, check this out. And let steadfastness have its full effect. God wants to complete something through steadfastness. God wants to finish something. He wants uh, to develop something in you. In other words, testing in our life, it has a goal. And that goal is that God can make it spiritually beneficial. And notice, notice what he says. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That you may be perfect. Okay, how many of you are perfect? Raise your hand. How many of you sin all the time? Raise your hand. Come on. So if you're not raising your hand, you're saying you're perfect. So raise your hand. You sin. I do. Lorenzo does. Casey does. We all do, right? Perfect here is not perfect like morally perfect. Perfect here has the idea of fully developed, mature, God wants you to be spiritually mature. God wants me to be spiritually mature. And so he's perfecting us. He's developing us through our trials. He's causing us to persevere because perseverance develops spiritual maturity. And then he says, not only that you may be perfect, but that you may be complete. The word here means complete in all its parts. It's a rare word in the New Testament. It's only used twice. And it has the idea that, that God wants you uh, to be blameless. He wants you to be complete in all your parts. In other words, God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your growth. And he wants to fully develop that. When believers are steadfast in trials, they develop spiritually. Then notice, he says, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. The word here means to fall short. God does not want you to fall short. God does not want us to lack anything of spiritual importance in our life. So he's perfecting us. He's maturing us. He's maturing our faith. He's maturing our character. He's maturing our perspectives so that they're his perspectives. He's maturing the design in our life, what we're created to do and, and, and the, the, the skill set and capacity that he's given us in our life so that we do it in the right way. You know, I would never ask for suffering in my life, but I have learned so much through pain. And I have grown so much through difficulty. And I'm a different person 
because of the pain that I've dealt with in my life. So although I would never ask for it, I'm thankful for what it's producing in my life. I'm thankful for what it's produced in my relationships, in my leadership, in speaking to the hearts of people. I'm thankful for what it's produced in my perspectives, in, in my connection with people in pain. I'm really thankful for how it's grown me in my faith because listen, you either turn away from God or you turn to God each day. And my faith is so much stronger because of the hardships and the pains that I've dealt with in my life. And I want to encourage you guys, it's the same with your life. As you persevere and you're struggling and you keep going, even if you're crawling, even if you're barely walking and you keep going forward in Jesus, you're going to be thankful, not for the pain, but for the process and what it's produced in your life. I love the book of 1 Peter because 1 Peter is all about this. And I want, I want you to look at a verse. Why don't you turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 as we close. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10, when you're there, say ready. All right, you guys aren't doing that too well. When you're there, say ready. Okay, if you come to my church, that's what we do. Okay, First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, it's not going to last forever. It's not going to last into eternity. It might last for the duration of your life on earth, but it's not going to last into eternity. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. I love how God is pictured here. God is a God of grace. And even if we stumble, even if we struggle, even if we have doubts, even if, even if our brokenness leaves us in despondency on the floor, in pain, God is still a God of grace and he loves you. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Our God is a God of grace. God loves you guys. God loves you when you're up here and God loves you when you're down here. God loves you when your life is going great and God loves you when your life is broken in a million pieces. And God will, he promises to restore, to strengthen, and to do confirm and to do all of these things in your life for you. Listen, here's what this teaches me. We have a God of great hope. Never forget that. We have a God of great hope. And he is worthy to be trusted when life is hard. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of suffering and the ultimate example of steadfastness and the ultimate example of hope. Jesus Christ is God's son and God's son left heaven and he came to earth. And when he came to earth, he came to live amongst people that rejected him, the very creator of heaven and earth. And he loved them and he taught them and he invested in them and he did miracles amongst them. And then they rejected him to the point where they crucified him on the cross. He died on that cross. And on the cross, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated for the first time in eternity from his father. 
and he became sin for you and I. He took our sin upon himself and he was in the greatest pain in all of humanity and he died on the cross and he didn't stay there. He rose from the grave because our God is a God who resurrects our pain. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, I encourage you to believe in Jesus Christ today to believe that he is your savior, that he will resurrect your life, he will change your life, he is the Lord God, king and savior of your life and through faith in him, your life will never be the same. And I want you to believe that through all the pain in your life, God is not a God who puts us in pain or allows us to go through pain without hope. There is always the resurrection around the corner. Let's pray together.